Hello, welcome to the Being Better Together podcast from Learning from Excellence and Civility Saves Lives. This podcast is a series of conversations with people who inspire us. We cover a wealth of topics from workplace cultures through inspiration, laughter and joy to appreciative inquiry and how to do work safely. Hi, I'm Chris from Civility Saves Lives. In this interview, Adrian and I had the privilege of speaking with Hena Saeed Sabir. Hena is a clinical psychologist who works at the Paediatric Intensive Care Unit at Birmingham Children's Hospital. We talked about a wide range of subjects, including debriefing, end-of-life care, workplace dissonance, and the risks of developing a shattered worldview. What really struck me on listening back is that Hena approaches these incredibly difficult topics with a rare level of sensitivity, pragmatism, and compassion. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, we're here with Hena Syed Sabir, who's a psychologist who works uh, in the same unit as me, uh, paediatric intensive care at the Children's Hospital in Birmingham. Um, Hena, welcome. Hi, Adrian. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Hi, Hena. Salam alaikum. Welcome, Salam, Chris. Nice to see you as well. Lovely to see you. Yeah, we're delighted you could join us today because I think um, there's a lot to learn from the work that you do. But before we start, um, could you just give us a introduction to your professional background, your career so far and your interests? Sure. Um, So I'm a clinical psychologist. I guess um, there's a lot of different types of psychologists. I thought I'd I'd say which type. Um, So my background is I did a a Bachelor of Science in Psychology many years ago and then worked um, in the community, actually weirdly in health psychology. I didn't realise that this would be somewhere where I'd end up now, but I worked in cardiac adult services for a period of time in acquired brain injury. Um, and then got into a doctorate of clinical psychology course at University of Sheffield. So I spent three years there. And it's similar to, to a kind of medical training where you do placements and teaching. So you do three years and then you write a, um, a thesis in your final year. Um, and then once that was completed, I actually moved to Birmingham. So I did my final placement here in Birmingham, actually for Birmingham Children's Hospital, but in the community. And in those days, we were a tier two child psychology service at, and so we were based at City Hospital in Birmingham. And I, I did my final placement there and then stayed. I got a job um, and was have been working for Children's Hospital since then, so that was about 17 years ago. Um, but we were a child psychology service, work, which were, was based in the community, so in health visitor clinics and, and kind of out with midwives and kind of really out there in the community. Um, and then we became the CAMS service, so we were then joined CAMS. And then after that, we joined Forward Thinking Birmingham, which is our zero to 25 mental health service. So I did a few years there. Um, and worked um, kind of as always interested in paediatrics. I, I did a secondment in HIV services for a year, um, and that kind of piqued my interest when the, when the PICU job came up that I wanted to come back into, into working in paediatrics and maybe more hospital-based. Um, and so it took a, the first, I think the first clinical psychology post that you've had in our PICU, which was created mm-hmm. in June of last year. So I could have applied for it pre-pandemic, not expecting to come into a pandemic, um, you know, sort of environment and started in June of last year. So it's just been a little over a year working in PICU. Yeah, kind of bad timing with the pandemic in some respects, but also good timing. Good timing, I guess, for the team to have yeah. kind of the additional sort of yeah, support. Yeah, absolutely. The um, need for psychological support is particularly high, I think, as a result of the pressures of the pandemic. 
and I know that you've made a, a big impact on the unit. And uh, how come PICU? What, what, why there specifically? So um, I have a bit of a personal interest in PICU. So this is the same unit that treated my son. My son was born with transposition of the great arteries um, just a little over 10 years ago. And he spent quite a few weeks on PICU. He was on ECLS support and um, post-surgery and then ventilation. And then unfortunately got RSV bronchitis and came back into hospital. So actually many of the colleagues I now work with looked after my son um, I never would have expected to ever come back into this <laughs> sort of, as a parent you think I never want to go back there but it was it was 10 years ago and I guess um, when the job came up it was something that I thought I could bring to the table both as a psychologist as a person who's experienced it as a parent um, sometimes parents say oh you've no idea what I'm talking about you know you don't know what it's like to be here um, and actually I I can agree with them that it's very hard excuse me to know what it's like unless you've actually been at the bedside and you've heard those monitors and beeping as a parent so they brought a little bit of extra in, you know kind of you know personal experience into the environment and I kind of sometimes I share this with family sometimes I don't because I don't want to minimize their experience because my experience is completely different to to anybody else's I think it's very individual but it just helps I think a little bit to to know what it to to know the experience and know that families spend a long time after being a parent thinking about their experiences and you know I think staff sometimes will receive cards from families many years later you know that saying this is my son now he's aged whatever and this is my daughter she's doing this now but I think that experience never goes away those acute days when you're in the unit um, for, for family so I think that was something that I kind of wanted to just use that experience within my work yeah I mean it's, it seems hard to overvalue uh, the lived experience of being through difficult times it doesn't really matter what aspect of life we're talking about here but being able to bring that into a professional environment and possibly bring some empathy with that as well I'm, I'm sure that matters hugely to an awful lot of the people that that you encounter at work probably staff as well to be honest help them to understand yeah I mean that's it must have been a very traumatic experience being a parent experiencing that because you actually experience the full gamut of intensive care support as you just described um, so it's actually inspiring that you came back to work in that environment yeah, I mean, the team was was something that really, um, I think as a parent, I was really moved by how much the team kind of did for my son. So I think there's something about when this job came up, it was about looking after the team as well as families. And that was really important to me. I kind of was, actually, this is somewhere where I can really make a difference. My background, is I've, I've studied kind of therapy quite significantly, and I'm a computer therapist and supervisor. And those skills are really helpful for for the team using their supervision skills, using their therapy skills. And, and as a psychologist, we're trained in many therapies, but that's my sort of special interest. And so being able to offer kind of a range of support to the team and the families was something that was kind of, you know, important to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so in, in your role, you have um, a role in looking after patients with families, but also looking after staff. So there's a bit of a contrast there. So could you just tell us about your role in general and then we and then we can talk a bit more about the debriefing work that you do? Sure. So I guess I guess the um the role is split into, as you said, into staff and and kind of family well-being. 
And as staff wellbeing, we follow a similar model to Julie Highfield in intensive care society sort of model, which is kind of a pyramid model that, that they use within healthcare. So a kind of universal layer, which is really about looking at education, looking at um, kind of using social media and newsletters and kind of other ways of, of being able to engage the team. That's more about psychoeducation, you know, thinking about their own wellbeing. And then a kind of middle, which is a more targeted layer, which is thinking about group approaches or approaches that you can engage the department as you know with so that's the debriefing that's the reflective practice we i guess we haven't been able to focus so much on our reflective practice just because of capacity um we don't often have a lot of capacity to offer that that middle layer just just because sometimes the debriefs will we offer debriefs following any significant event on the on the unit whether that's a patient death or whether that's some just a, a patient being very ill and and staff wanting to talk about their you know their experience of care and then we have what we our individual sort of more kind of sort of smaller it's a smaller bit of the triangle the top of the triangle but i think the one that people know us best for which is our one-to-one -one staff support so we'll offer one-to-one -one staff support for any staff member that, that that wants it um and they can do that over the telephone they can do it in zoom or they can do it in person but some people prefer to see us face to face especially if they're um kind of facing kind of on the shop floor staff that don't want to talk about things when they get home they want to talk about it at work so um, the unit has been really understanding from having a bit of time out of 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 the um, you know of their working day to come and talk to one of the psychologists and spend and and I guess this is where our dilemma comes in a little bit because we kind of sit within our team so we are colleagues and we're within the MDT but we're also somebody that you may have spent an hour with telling something really difficult to and then we kind of run you so it's a it's an interesting we try and keep it very separate we have separate systems for our staff so that there's no possibility I guess with and we know this working hospital environments boundaries become very blurred so I think we've we've tried to model I guess boundaries for for our team about them being able to come and talk to us confidentially and build trust with with the team that, that what they say to us is completely separate to when we work with alongside them with a particular patient or family. Um, so I think that's been really an important part. So it's, it's a multi-layered job. Um, and unfortunately, just at the moment, it's just myself um, in the job. It was a job share and the other psychologist has had a baby. So she's not, she's not here. So we were hoping to get another psychologist in soon, but you know, at the moment it's just, it just. <laughs> you, you mentioned the uh, model of support that's provided in other intensive care environments. Um, you mentioned Julie Highfield and the work that she's done. Could you, just for the uh, members of the community who are not aware of that, can you, are you able to summarize the, the types of psychological support that, that uh, models that are available elsewhere in the NHS? I mean, I think, I think within intensive care units, there's been a real push um, from the intensive care society, for example, has, has now employed Julie Highfield to, to nationally roll out sort of a model of well-being and a programme for, for kind of for psychology and for just, just well-being in general, for peer support and other things. So there's quite a lot of information on the intensive care society website. Um, but you, but actually in hospitals, I think there's a there's a new uh, there's not many units, intensive care units and PICU units that have psychologists. Now we're beginning to see much more of, of psychologists that are standalone posts for 
for those particular departments. Other hospital departments, like you know, emergency departments and other things, might have access to a psychologist within the hospital. Um, they might have so within Birmingham Children's, for example, we have a pediatric psychology department that lots of departments have links with, so they have a particular link psychologist. But this is the first sort of this is a standalone post that is purely for PICU, which is a little bit different. So my whole job is about PICU, it's about and kids NTS, which is our critical care transport service. So those two bits of the service have a psychologist that they can access at any point, which is a real recognition, I think, of the level of kind of difficulty or emotional difficulty that comes alongside um, doing a job like like yours, Adrian, you know, that that there is a real emotional impact, a real trauma sometimes of, of that of that post and for the critical care transport service who see very poorly children um, and the experience of seeing families in distress and being able to recognize that that has an impact um, on them and they need somewhere for that to go. Um, and previously, I think people used to just say, well, you just need to get on with it. It's part of the job. You just need to get on. That's, that's, that's why you came into this post in the first place. Whereas now we're recognizing that, yes, it is part of the job, but it's massively difficult. Um, and you have, uh, it has a real emotional, um, and, and we know that, for example, people who don't have uh, some processing space for some of the emotions or some of the difficulties they see, it goes somewhere else. So either into kind of, um, they might, choose to, to use alcohol or use substances, use medication, use numbing, you know, have difficulties in their relationships or their personal life. So it does go somewhere. It doesn't just end, end there. So I think there's a real recognition now um, that we, that there is an emotional impact and, and that we need to address it as a, as a service, um, as a system, as opposed to resilience training, that you just need to be a bit more resilient, which is very individual, isn't it? It's about kind of saying that actually there's, that's a really nice analogy that Gillian Colville uses and um, when when I've heard her speak and she's another psychologist in PICU and she talks very much about um, you know resilience training is about building a super canary um, you know thinking about the mines and when we used to send canaries down not thinking about the toxic gas that's killing the canaries in the first place and what we want to do is change the environment to not produce the toxic gas rather than saying that canaries just need to be a bit more robust you know and last a bit longer you know? yeah yeah the, the whole issue around the, the resilience training is is so frustrating it can feel like we put the burden of a broken system back on the shoulders of the people who are yeah. trying to support the the system as well and it's utterly utterly yeah. frustrating and i often get asked chris to do we did a resilience workshop recently we were asked to specifically do this and we were always saying this is about the system you know it's about the system becoming more resilient not an individual and um, I always really like to quote Michael White, um, who's kind of a narrative psychologist, and, and talk about he always talks about kind of the person is not the problem, it's the problem that's the problem. And we want to not locate the difficulty in people, we want to think about systems. Um, and this is when Adrian and I have talked about when clinical medical errors occur within a hospital, that often the blame is held by a particular person, and we we think about the system failing. Um, so what 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 took place in order for this to happen rather than you know, putting on a particular person. Um, so I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. On that specific point, um, I, I know that you, you do the, some debrief work with people collectively and as individuals. Is it possible to tell us a little bit more about the, the collective bit of debriefing and what it is that you're doing? So, you know, I mean, debrief has been used, kind of that word is very broad and people use it in, in lots of different ways. So I think it's first worth defining what we mean by debrief. Um, 
because I guess, um, you know, following a particular incident in a hospital, they like to use the words hot debrief and, you know, that's that's very clinical and it's very much, you know, what do we do here team and how did it go? Um, but there's also a, a more colder or warm, lukewarm debrief, which happens a little bit later. And I guess that's the bit that I'm talking about. It's not the immediate aftermath of a particular, you know, if there was a, a, an event, a cardiac arrest or a particular event that, that we're talking. So this is about when something happens that has an emotional impact, whether that's a death of a, of a patient, a child, a baby, whether that's um, something that there's a kind of significant amount of moral distress coming from the intervention that we're offering within um, intensive care for a particular patient. And, and we notice that there's, there's been an emotional impact um, and we try and the idea is to offer it quite quickly after the event. So within a week, so we're not waiting too long. So, and it's, getting everybody around the table. Um, and so now we do it by Zoom. Um, and I think people have lots of kind of different feelings about that. I think some people would prefer to do it in person, but what we found with Zoom is that people can come in wherever they are, they can, they can access it. The problem with um, having something face-to-face, -face, if you're not on shift that day, you kind of can't access that particular thing. But then the dilemma is that when you're at home and you should be relaxing and not thinking about work, we're asking you to kind of start thinking about, you know, work within your living room or within your bedroom, wherever it is, your kitchen, which is supposed to be your safe space. Um, and suddenly you're recalling a, a kind of difficult event in those places. So there is a dilemma about how we best do it sort of practically, but there's also a, a dilemma within psychologists. So, you know, there's a discussion about whether we should debrief or not, what's the purpose of it. So Neil Greenberg talks a lot about, and he's a psychiatrist in the snow trim kind of you know, background. And he talks very much about kind of debriefs shouldn't be a kind of cure for PTSD. It's not an intervention for PTSD. And we very much agree with that. That's the kind of our ethos that it's not about taking away or curing PTSD, but what we're doing is allowing a space for memories and trauma to be processed safely so we want to be able to we're not talking about clinical levels of of, of trauma but we're talking about traumatic events um so i go with a kind of stephen hobfell who um, wrote a paper i think in 2007 and he talked about sort of five principles of of trauma sort of um so so things like having a sense of safety so what we try and do in our in our debriefs is give everybody a sense of safety we talk about kind of making a sense of calming and we know that traumatic events bring up either hyper arousal where people feel really anxious or they feel hyper aroused so they feel very kind of low and numbed by the event so the idea is what we're trying to do is bring a sense of safety back to the unit um, to bring a sense of connectedness to each other so that they feel now particularly with the pandemic as a team, we're very disconnected. We don't have the same social, in, you know, kind of things that we were able to do. We're not able to, to even be physically close like we used to be able to do. So I think being able to produce a sort of psychological connectedness again to the team to promote their sense of efficacy. So being able to get, you know, what they did was good and it was positive and they kind of worked together and getting their sense of control back into um, and I think his last one is is hope. And I think that's a really positive one that you feel really hopeless. You know, people have a really shattered worldview um, when they, are, you know, we think about what we see is very skewed in society. We see very difficult things. And I might like, you work in the emergency department, Chrissy, you, you see kind of lots of, is that right? Um, so you must see, uh, you know, really difficult things and it completely changes your worldview. But the world is a really unsafe and horrible place to be in. Um, and that's not necessarily the case, but having that sense of department where we can talk about it together as a and, and kind of almost 
reset and shift that skewed perspective. So that, that's what we, that's the kind of theoretical, we use a paper that was um, produced by NICU psychologists, um, Sarah O'Curry and um, Sarah Jane Archibald, they wrote it quite recently and we use that as a kind of framework for our debriefs within PICU. So there is a shift now of psychologists who are working in those environments to say, actually debriefs are helpful because the background of not, uh, sort of the data that was used before was all based in PTSD, um, car accident sort of type data. So it was all about, you know, being part of an accident and then, you know, kind of using critical incident debriefing and then that not seeming to work. Whereas this is very different. This is about healthcare staff who experience trauma through either through directly through actually physically working on a, on a child, a baby and then that baby dying and also seeing trauma. So you're seeing parents in massive distress, families in distress and having to convey bad news and difficult news to them. And also a sense of, failure that actually we didn't save or we didn't work hard enough so there's sometimes some of that worked together and I, I have a quote actually which I wanted to share if that's okay with one of our staff I asked some of the staff to to give me their thoughts about what they thought because I thought I actually don't want to hear my words I want to hear their voice so I just want to read that out if that's okay so this is one of our nurses who uh, senior nurses who who replied saying after an event or an experience that will often leave you with questions concerns or thoughts these debriefs have offered a safe, positive, non-judgmental environment, allowing you to, to have a discussion and share experiences, our concerns, the positives with colleagues and the multidisciplinary team about the experience, allowing some clarity, some closure, readiness to accept the way you may be feeling with regards to the event. So that kind of, for me, sums up exactly what we wanted to do with the debrief. So she sort of summed it up for me and she wasn't prompted to, she just, that was her thoughts. So that was really helpful when I read that. I thought actually that that really helps me to know that what we're doing is, is the right approach for the team. So, I mean, what we do is have an hour long meeting, but it's about boundaries and safe space. What we want to teach our team is that, you know, you will have to be in this environment for an hour and we won't push you past this. So you have a sense of, I know this is going to end. We don't want it to be like a traumatic event where you feel like it could go on forever and we're not sure when it might end and we're not sure if we ever get, you know, if we can get to the next thing. So the idea is that we say to them, it will go on no longer than an hour so you can do something different. And I do encourage them to you know, a team to do something a bit different before they go back to work so that they so we're really acknowledging this is about you've experienced some difficult emotions in this space um, and that has an impact on you um, and I think at the beginning they all thought it was a bit crazy <laughs> but like oh she goes again with her feelings we had lots of silences within the hour and on zoom silences are really odd aren't they they're not the same as having it in a room so when people don't say anything on zoom you're all sort of sitting there going is the mic working has the internet cut off what's going on so there was a lot of that at the beginning, but I think then what we as psychologists know is silence is a process. Um, you need that silence to be able to give time for people to think and to, to process some of their emotions that they what they've heard. And we want to be able to allow that space and that silence. So sometimes I name it in the session now, I say, oh, we're having a bit of silence now, but that's okay. Um, we're allowing people some space to think about their experience. Because in often in what I've noticed in healthcare services, particularly intensive care, is there's never any silence there's always noise or conversation or doing you know and jumping in and and it's very and because they're used to responding quickly and so we do another process called spaces for listening where we allow people two minutes to talk about their experiences and in that spaces for listening the psychologists that I ran it with we did a, one with all the psychology department and we could very easily that you know the timer went off to two minutes and we went oh is that it is that finished oh that don't feel like any time at all 
And I did it with healthcare staff and with the critical care transport service. They lasted about 35 seconds and they went, that's it, I'm done now. Is I'm done, is it not two minutes? Is it not finished? Because they're so used to, you know, that space being yeah. very quick. And I just thought, oh, that's really interesting. It's a really fascinating difference um, in the teams. So being able to allow a space, I think is really important. Being able to connect, I think what we find with our healthcare staff is because of the shift working, they may have seen a patient on day one and the patient died on day three. And when they saw them on day one, they had a completely different presentation to what happened on day three. And they're left with a lot of questions about what happened. I, I don't understand. I saw them and did I do anything wrong? And was there anything that I missed? And so all those questions then linger and carry on. And if you imagine that adds on, they may not even be so conscious. They may be somewhere deep down, you know, inside. So the idea is we put the story together. We put the puzzle pieces together for people in the debrief. So we start with a medical history, just for 10, 15 minutes. But it's really interesting now that we find we do ask one of the medics, the consultants to lead that discussion on the medical history. Um, but they all say now in the beginning, and Adrian, you may be familiar with this, they all say that I know this isn't about the medical story. So I'll keep mine to 10, 15 minutes. And I know we're going to move on to what people's experiences, which is very different now. So everybody knows that this isn't about, and if there's any discussions that people want to have, they say, oh, we'll have this in M&M or we'll have this in another forum. But we know that this is just a sort of understanding so everybody knows the medical information. The medical information is massively important for a team. I think that they need to understand what happened you know there's you know, and they they often know more obviously i don't understand a lot of the medical information but it for them it's something that really re is really meaningful but it shouldn't take over the discussion it's a, the discussion is very much about how you felt looking after that child that family and that connection you had with the family and then the focus automatically shifts as part of that process and people start talking about what it was like and it can almost feel like sometimes we I mean, for family that we had a young boy that was with us for uh, many months and it was a, it was felt like a grieving process. This this the staff team had built up a really close relationship with with the parents, and they were grieving. They were grieving with the parents, and they needed a space to talk about that grief. And so sometimes it is a grief. Sometimes it's it's we don't understand what happened here. What did we do wrong? Kind of discussion. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's like oh we shouldn't have been doing that in the first place. We want to talk about what we did. So it can be many different things. But I think we don't have those. And I think you know Julie Highfield talks about conversations around the campfire that's what this is about this is about that let's have a chat and let's have a discussion about it and be human rather than the clinical discussion it's about how it, you felt as a person in that in that group sometimes it's about well this boy is the same age as my son and it really it was really hard for me to see this and we can't say that anywhere else you can say it in this safe environment and we've I've been really particular about how I share what people say in the groups so there's a lot of we have lots, we make it confidential. We will send out kind of, I'll send out a little bit of information to the rest of the team that, about the themes, but very broadly, but we want to make it completely safe that people feel free to discuss. And sometimes there is emotion and anger. And I think Adrian, you may, I don't know if you've been part of any, but sometimes there is directed towards the medical team. Like we, you know, we're really angry with you. <laughs> you know, the nursing staff will say that. And, but there needs a space for that to, to happen so that, that the team can then can come back together and connect. And that's what the purpose of this is. I think it's about, about those principles, having that sense of connection again, realizing what you did was, was positive. You know, you were trying to, sometimes it doesn't feel that way, especially if it's been very invasive. So, and I realized I've talked a lot there, but um, it's a really long answer. Sorry about that. I've got two pages of notes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really, I really do have two pages of notes. <laughs> and a million fantastic. questions. Adrian, sorry. 
No, I mean, I've, I've made a few uh, notes during uh, that description where you were telling us so much about the debriefs. Look um, at one is, I suppose, an observation or reflection of my own experiences is that that you talked about needing a processing time um, and, and naming it can be quite useful. And actually, I wonder if that may be something I bring into my daily practice. So we quite often, obviously working in intensive care, you quite often have these uh, uh, experiences that are so far outside social norms that they are essentially traumatic. Um, a child dying being a, a, the sort of archetype of that. Um, but sometimes I've noticed, and I've talked about this with some of my colleagues, nursing and medical um, and other professionals, that sometimes I notice I don't actually feel um, the, the trauma. I don't really feel particularly upset by this. And then that itself becomes an upsetting thought. I think I'm, I'm becoming so hardened to this. I'm losing a bit of humanity. Um, but talking about that and naming that with some colleagues, which I did recently, it turned out to be helpful for me. Yeah. Um, but then it can go the other way, and I call it an empathy attack, where I move from compassion to empathy, um, completely accidentally make a connection with a family. could be something fairly superficial, like I have a child the same age or I have a common interest with the parents, and they experience something horrendous, and it just completely takes over. Um, my own experience um, and I think this idea of having some time to process that is something that may be quite useful for me going forward I, was... I completely hear where you're coming from Adrian it's uh, in, in my own world um, in the emergency department the the sort of sense of somebody dies you go you break bad news and then you move on mm. sometimes without a break. I mean, just, just to tell you a really, really quick story. I mean, it happened to me a long, long time ago um, when I was a higher specialist trainee at the beginning of my higher specialist training. We went and we had a, it was a child, two-year-old came in. They were really sick. We worked really hard with this child. We got them stabilized and they, they headed off with, with the pediatricians. And we just don't build time for processing that into our, our day and you know that this kid was not far off the ages of my 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 daughter at that time and I walked into the next room to see a guy who just gave me a face full of abuse because he'd waited so long and he'd had this sore knee for six months and he wanted it looked at tonight and for one of the only times in my career I I pretty much lost it. I explained to him where I'd been, what I'd been doing, explained to him how insignificant his knee was in the overall scheme of things. And of course it wasn't, it was very significant to him. It's his knee. He's come to hospital to get it looked at. Um, and it is the only written complaint about my attitude I've ever received. And going back and reflecting on it afterwards, um, I, I was just in no emotional state to be going into another human being who had their own needs at that moment in time. And I, I spent a long time thinking about it. And my, my career, so I think like everybody else, lots of sense making. You need space to make sense. You probably need the right 
get people to bounce ideas off. And, and I very much get the feeling that's what, what you're describing here, Hannah, the space to make sense of stuff. And also the, the space to make sense from different professional perspectives. So that we know that everyone's trying to do the right thing. Almost everybody is trying to do the right thing. We also know that my right thing and your right thing might be very different. And you might think I'm not trying to do the right thing, but the chances are everyone's trying to do the right thing just through their lens. And I think that sitting in a room with people and having the opportunity to, to talk through what makes something right for us is hugely powerful. This is getting to a question, by the way. Sorry, it's a really long route to a question. I will admit, Adrian, I'm sorry, Anna. Um, and and my, my question is this, and this is from my own experience of doing group work, is within those groups that you are running to do the debrief, there will be people who are used to being listened to. How do you create the space so that they don't dominate and the people whose who are also processing just as hard, get the chance to be heard and to have value in that group? I, I think um, setting up the group is really important, how you set it up at the beginning. So being able to be really clear about what the purpose is and what everyone's role is. So being able to say that, because you're absolutely right, often there are powerful others in any group that, you know, we like to, I think you talk a lot about flattened hierarchy within LFE and how we, but in reality, that's not always the case. You will have somebody who has a lot of power on the unit um, and is often used to being given airtime um, and other people on, you know, who may be a newly qualified member of staff or being, you know, somebody who's, who's not been in that job very long and feeling that they're not, and also personality factors. They might be people who are generally shyer and not used to, but they really want a space. And I think what we do, um, kind of what I do is, is set up, you know, you can only do so much. I think that's the thing, Chris, as well. You can only do so much to try and, um, but I think having the boundaries at the beginning, saying that this is an opportunity for everybody to speak, being able to give different ways of, of so what we do in the, um, in our particular Zooms is we allow the chat box. Um, so some people do or don't, but I think that's a really important way of people being able to express their thoughts and saying if you're, so that we can, and, and I will close people down as well. I'll say, you know, I've really heard what you said and I'd really like to hear from, so having a moderator, but separate, that's not part of the unit. So people now know that it's, it's led by the psychologists and we have to lead it. You have to take a, and you have to say, I've really kind of, I've really heard what you've had to say, but I'd really like to give the opportunity to so-and-so. And so we do shut it down and I will give time. So I say, we've got 25 minutes left. We've got 15 minutes left. So that people know that they have an opportunity to speak and encourage people to use the chat box and I will read it out, whatever they're, um, so, so some people are actually on shift at the time and they've got their headphones on and they're kind of in the middle of other things, but then they'll use a chat box to put whatever they wanted to do. And so I think that is also some people say, well, how can you do it without having a camera on and having everybody engaged? But I think we've got to be practical on our intensive care. You want to be able to give the maximum amount of participation. And we know what it's like when you're on shift. It's really hard to, to sometimes, you know, you plan to have an hour out, but, you know people there'll be a crisis and then you have to go so but they still want to be able to participate in some way so with, for 10 minutes they get away and they want to be able to listen in for that 10 minutes so we allow that process I think we have to be flexible 
Um, and I think unless you're a psychologist who works in healthcare, you won't necessarily understand that because I think sometimes the psychologists were a bit like, no, 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 we need to have that out. Everybody needs to commit to this. This needs to be something. But I think knowing the staff and knowing how busy things are, I just want to be able to ma maximize participation. So that's what I do. So that's my own thing. I think they should be able to use chatbot to be able to have the camera off if they don't want it, being able to use headphones, you'd be able to just listen in and not even say anything if they don't want to, um, you know, if they're in the middle of something else. So just being able to allow lot just the processing and people often say I just I didn't want to say anything I just wanted to hear so there is opportunity for for space not just as a group we have to allow lots of different processing so for you Chris you know maybe a group wouldn't have been appropriate for you but maybe some time with a colleague or with some some peer support might have been so it's about what's best for for people as individuals and not offering a one-size-fits-all but we try and offer lots of different approaches so that somebody something will work for someone I'll hand back to Adrian in a second, but I just want to make one tiny wee comment about something you said there. Yeah. Um, and it, it's about understanding the pressures within healthcare and that people need to sort of dip in and dip out. I think it's quite interesting. There are a bunch of parallels in, in processes which are, are nothing to do with psychology, just within organisations. Um, my, my own organisation uses some of the sort of Virginia Mason methodology. Um, and one of the deals with meetings there is the door will be closed. The door will be closed. And if you're two minutes late, you don't get into the meeting. And I, I, I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but what I'm saying is that says that my meeting's more important than everything else in your world. Yeah. And when the rest of your world is a, a really tense system that's under pressure in lots of different ways, that feels slightly uncomfortable to me at the beginning of my career I would have been the guy who would have been quite okay with closing a door at the beginning of my senior career uh, and now I totally accept that you know there's just so many different competing things going on in people's lives and, and I, I think I completely agree with that's why I said you know that actually I would have been the one that said no no we need to make the system needs to change you know we need to make this important you know we need to find yeah but the reality is what we've learned over the pandemic particularly is our system is so creaky and strained and that they're tearing at the seams where are we going to be able to so we can either not offer it you know and I don't think we can be black and white anymore about these things there's so much gray in there um, and I think that's maybe experience and just being part of this team that's saying well, what what is the best we can offer given all the things that are going on in this department and I don't think there are any ideal or any particular answers just like you said Chris there's no you know I, I completely you know the model of being able to close the door and have time boundaries and say you have to be here when we start and you have to be there till the end um it, it's it's a dilemma I think <laughs> I've lo I've loved that you've made me stop and think about that because you surfaced something there with me that I think has been sort of percolating through for for a number of years and I feel much more comfortable with my slightly slacker approach to this these days yeah <laughs> Don't let that be a boundary. All the boundary psychologists be like, what is going on? <laughs> we need to have a conversation with you. <laughs> so I've got a question around um, what would trigger a debrief. So I guess the definition of trauma, we covered, covered it a little bit, I think, in the conversation, but it's, it's going to be varied, isn't it? It's not just a binary event like uh, death of a patient. Um, and in fact, a couple of things spring to mind that may be considered traumatic from a staff perspective. One is this concept of kind of moral distress, where, which is more common now as the epidemiology of healthcare is changing, particularly 
in intensive care where we're, we're having to deliver treatments that we don't always think are the right thing to do. So I was wondering if that would ever trigger a debrief or if you think it should. Yeah, do. I mean, it completely should. And we have in a department, sometimes we call it different things. We sometimes call it reflective rounds. We sometimes call it, um, you know, pre-brief. There's lots of different words for what we might have, but the, the, the style of the meeting is very similar. It's being able to get people together um, around a metaphorical table just to have a discussion about it. So I think the, the, what you've talked about with moral distress, uh, there is a lot of moral distress about end of life care. You know, how long do we offer care for? How much should we do? How much shouldn't we do? You know, whether we're harming or helping. And that, that, that discussion happens a lot for, particularly for bedside nursing team. We, we find that the bedside nursing team feels very and it feels and there's a lot and lots of communication sometimes between why are we doing what we're doing so we don't know and there's sometimes handover messages that aren't always clear there's always there's not always a clear space to talk about some of this so I think are those meetings whatever we call them debriefs um sort of reflective meetings that's about giving that space to talk about what we're doing why we're doing the impact on us staff have talked to me a lot about our teams talked a lot about more distress of not having two parents or you know any you know on next to a child they don't they're like it's really unfair you know we've always for years had you know a parent is, has just given birth and they are expected to be on their own you know actually that produces a lot of distress in us as, as you know when we're thinking about the actual process we've just been able to separate ourselves out a bit from it but if we really put ourselves in that position and we think well this is me in that bed space and I just had a baby and I couldn't have anybody with me that's huge, that's massive. That's really just, you know, that produces a lot of emotion if I was to think. So that has produced a lot of emotion from our team, you know, being able, the visiting policies within the pandemic. That's moral distress, actually, we have to name it. That's actually, that's going against all our moral code of care that we have, you know, we have both parents with their child. They're not visitors, they're parents, you know, they're part of our, our system, particularly within paediatrics. We don't see parents as visitors, we see them as a family care, you know, if we really think about it. And we've not been able to offer the care that we normally offer. So that produces a lot of distress within intensive care. When staff have been asked, particularly staff who are not used to working in intensive care, have gone into departments that they're new they've come away with actually what we'd call post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. So I've seen members of staff who've been um, redeployed into other departments, not had the same. So all the things that we do to help ourselves in those departments is have connectedness with our colleagues. We know where things are. You know, we know how to get onto the systems, clinical systems. We know where the toilets are, really practical stuff. You know, we know where we, how we take, we know how to, so some of them said we couldn't find a key to get out of the unit. We couldn't find a swipe card to get. So then we were, you know, really stuck. We didn't know what to do. And that produces, you know, a lot of stress. For, so there's 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 moral distress on lots of different la layers. And I think there's lots of, especially the last couple of years since the pandemic, we've got a lot of papers now um, looking specifically at moral distress. But even pre-pandemic, um, there are there is research out there, but it's the focus has really shifted now to know that this is something that, that we need to think about as a, as a department. Yeah, well, it's, it's good that we're recognising it, I suppose. I mean, the, the other form of, I guess it's a kind of moral distress that we didn't discuss was the, what's sometimes called second victim phenomenon. Um, the nomenclature of that is challenged quite rightly, but basically it's a form of trauma, partly vicarious trauma because there's harm occurring to a patient but it's partly direct trauma because you as a healthcare professional have been responsible in some way yeah. uh, for that harm through a lapse of judgment or an error often due to some systemic 
failure. Um, is that something that is also triggering debriefs or something that we, that we could see a kind of psychological intervention for in, in the future? Yeah, I think we've talked about this a lot within our PICU safety teams about what we, how we offer support to members of staff because people have described that the investigation is more traumatic than the actual trauma. You know, the, what happens afterwards you know, lingers on in people's careers. And I think most medical staff can talk about when there's been an incident, you know, even for when they were junior doctors, they can remember it like it was yesterday. They very clearly, clearly has a strong emotional impact on them. So being able to offer psychological support alongside um, alongside whatever investigation is taking place. So I think there's an umbrella term you talked about, which is vicarious trauma, and that's kind of really broad. And I think we experience vicarious trauma all the time within the unit. We just don't talk about it. So being seeing you know families in distress and parents in distress is massively vicarious trauma, but particularly you know if you're connecting with that emotion, if you're connecting as a parent or an uncle or an aunt or something with that family who's who's so that's trauma we just don't we just don't we just think oh that's, that's that's fine we see people distressed all the time but that is the vicarious trauma and then you've got this broad trauma and then it, it's more specific when you talk about that that term second victim or secondary trauma that that you know you've been involved with something that completely violates every single moral code that you have because you've come into your profession to help and not cause harm and then something some action within the system or within what you you know what's happened when you've been looking after a particular patient that's happened and that's resulted in in something different something adverse happening whether it's in, you know whether that's actual death or whether that's harm um so so all of that is i think is a recognition now that that's it's always been there, but I think now within a department, we're doing more to support that member of, of staff. I think people talk about this, you know, we know some of the more high profile cases that staff weren't offered support at all. Um, you know, they have sometimes been so we just blame it on them and then you know, hopefully we'll move on. You know, there's been a bit of a bit of that. And we can I think we all know different cases that we've heard about where it's been in the press and and rightly so. Parents obviously want to be able to have answers for their you know if it's particular i'm thinking about pediatric cases where child children have died you know they want answers and and they want to be able to purport blame on on particular people or, or departments for that if they feel that it's happened you know kind of unduly you know so i think there is a um there is a kind of a really difficult line to walk on i think that's where that that people kind of finding second victim a difficult term because they feel like the families are the victim and, and not the staff. But I would also say that staff or family, you know, the treat the kind of staff team are also victims of, of a process, of a system that failed, um, because that's what how I see medical errors or clinical errors. I see them as a failure as a system, whether that's a failure in the education system, whether that's a failure in the support systems around there, whether that's a failure, you know, in, in team working, because we're not supposed to be working individually. We're supposed to be working as a team. Um, and sometimes departments allow individual working. So we often see on medical Twitter, you know, somebody with about five bleeps going, this is me on my night shift. This is what I'm covering. No, that shouldn't happen. You know, that's five people that you're, supposed to be working and if a clinical if a, a medical error occurs on that night shift it's a system error not a personal difficulty because that person was running between floors and wards trying to look after five different areas of the hospital so yeah it's a it's such a complex yeah system, isn't it, healthcare? and anything that we do to try and make it better in terms of well-being 
psychological input, um, responding to civility, improving the culture, it's always going to need a system-wide um, approach to transcend all the different silos. And that, and that is incredibly challenging. And our tendency is to just go in at one level. Yeah. Um, so that's a challenge for all of us. Chris. So, uh, and I'm kind of struck by what you're saying about the, the blame thing. And I, I think blame is incredibly seductive. It's a really simple place to go to. But I also think that we we encourage it in healthcare. We encourage it. We encourage blame sometimes against our colleagues. Sometimes we blame families. Families sometimes blame us. There, there, there's, there can be a lot of blame being chucked around when really difficult stuff has happened. And it strikes me that what you're talking about is one of the antidotes to this. And one of the antidotes to this in my world um, is understanding. It's, it's understanding and a degree of unconditional positive regard, a degree of taking yourself into this and thinking that everybody was trying to do the right thing, but listening to each of their different stories. And just share something very, very briefly with you. So I've sat in with families many, many times talking about issues. I was a governance lead for 10 years, and including in mid-staffs. And those meetings when they start people people are angry they frequently want to blame somebody else what i found is that if i sit down with them and i say tell me your story tell me what happened i do something else i'll let them record it if they've got a recording phone say put your phone on you can record this so you can listen back to it afterwards but tell me your story and they tell me their story and they start off wanting blood and at the end of their story, and sometimes this is 15, 20 minutes of them talking and me asking for a bit of explanation about bits of it at times. And they get to the end and I ask them what they want. And what they tend to say is, I don't want this to happen to anybody else. They started off wanting blood, a specific person's blood that was all about blame. At the end of it, once they feel heard, I've learned loads. There is stuff I can take out of that. But they have a catharsis from that. And, and I think that part of what you're describing here is there's a parallel in that catharsis that staff get from um, feeling that people are creating space and time to understand them and understand what's going on. And for me, that that is one of the antidotes to blame. And it's really just a, a comment more than anything else. I just see I see parallels in the things that you're doing and the time that you're making and the effort you're going to to create an environment where people are able to talk that um, have value in lots of other little bits of my, my professional career. I have a kind of specific question about you, but not about you. Well, it's kind of about you. That's the thing. Um, you mentioned that when, when you, when you go into the room, you have these five principles. One of them is that it's calming. How do you do that? What are you doing to to try to not allow, allow that room to be over aroused? Yeah, and I, I think that's a really important question. I think um, it's difficult because sometimes the situation is 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 a you know it's distressing and you know it produces recalling it produces distress. But I guess it's how we recall it um, and allowing that space for people not to feel. So we do all the things that you you don't get to do within, within meetings is we allow time and space. 
there's very few spaces where you can just talk like here for example I've just been allowed to talk uh, there's very few spaces like that that we have within our teams within healthcare where people won't interrupt where you we can be heard um, and that exactly what you said Chris about about the beginning there might be a a kind of a hyper aroused bit at the beginning, but the idea is that towards the end of the process where people feel heard, they feel understood, you've made sense of it. So I'll often offer interpretations of what people are saying, so psychological interpretations, so putting together, so help theme some of the things together while people are talking. So I'll make notes and I'll say, it sounds like what so-and-so has said sounds really similar to what you've said. And I'm guessing that this, you know, that this, these two comments are about feeling whatever you know feeling that you both felt this emotion and this made you feel like and so being able to have those psychological interpretations from the event is what I think what you're asking is produces that sense of calming because as soon as someone makes that connection for you and you feel like actually that really sits well you've really understood what I've what I've said and now and I understand what so, and you've got a sense of connectedness to somebody else. So, oh, a lot of people say to me, oh, am I going crazy? Why have I had these thoughts? Why are these things in my head? Um, but actually you're not because you, so, you know, your colleague has said the same thing. Um, you know, you've been heard and what you've said hasn't, hasn't made everybody look at you in a, in a different way. You've, so that connection, that understanding, all the things that we do as psychologists in a room with somebody say in therapy, which is listening and making sense and linking back for them and coming back, coming with a, a sense of closure over an event, all of that, I think, produces that calming feeling. So it's not at the beginning, but hopefully by the end of it, by the end of the session, there's a sense of closure and ending to it. Um, That's hugely helpful. Thank you. I, I, I was I was kind of wondering if you had this sort of Zen thing that you did and you went in <laughs> and everyone was like, oh, no. <laughs> and, and, and no, actually, you, you let it do that. That, that actually... Do you know, there's a parallel there with appreciative inquiry. When Suzanne Quinney talks about appreciative inquiry, she says that, you know, although it's meant to be about the positive stuff, people need to get some of that negative stuff off their chest. And you just need to allow them the space and time to do yeah. that if that's important to them. Yeah. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, we've noticed that a lot doing appreciative inquiries that you'll always get a bit of negative stuff. And actually, it can be framed. And this is how I overcame this problem which is which is quite nice there was one question along the kind of practical tips um direction that i wanted to ask um around when you're holding a debrief or that type of conversation and we've talked about this before about how it can be useful if someone is in a prominent position like uh, a consultant who's responsible for the care of the patient is willing and able to share a bit of vulnerability um in front of uh, whoever else is present and sort of name some of the feelings that they're experiencing. Is that something that um, you recognise and find helpful? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really powerful. I mean, we don't force our, our medical lead or consultants to do that, but sometimes it happens organically as part of the process. Um, and it and actually it's, it's hugely powerful being able to see a senior member of staff, whether that's one of the senior nursing staff or whether that's one of the medical team members being able to to say things like they were they were really moved they were heartbroken they and this is after many years of practice that they're still and I think Adrian you talked a little bit about about that about that dif difference of emotion sometimes you, you feel a real numbness from your experience that it didn't 
you know and sometimes it can be so far and they talk about sometimes talk about how far the, the rabbit hole should you go should you be at the top bit of the where you sort of just touch the emotion a little bit but don't get too much attached to the family so you, you're sort of just on the edge do you go down a little bit further or do you do get so involved and, and with your empathy with the family that you're really feeling everything that they're feeling and that's as a healthcare professional it's really difficult because we want to be warm and empathic but we don't want to be broken by our roles. And, and if we were to do that with every family, we would break us, you know, actually we can't experience death of children over and over again and experience it as parents, that would break us. You know, we, we but we experience it as we, we, we remove ourselves from, from that situation. So, but there is something about being affected and being able to share how you're affected, whether that was that I was, you know, this particular family I connected to. So some of our consultants have said, with some of the debriefs that they really connected with these parents and they were really open about that and they felt really they felt a lot of emotion from working with this particular family and I think that vulnerability it's a big ask but it's it, it is a big process it's a powerful process to bring your vulnerability because we're saying that that's okay it's okay to be vulnerable as a team we're saying we acknowledge that our role our jobs bring out emotions and and that's all right and even if you've done this for 20 30 years it still brings out emotions and that's okay for that emotion to come out but it doesn't mean you're broken it, you know expressing those emotions talking about those emotions is is a positive thing and you can move forward from that um so i think it's you know going back to the positive language within lfe we're actually saying that this this is a good thing that we want to be able to talk about our emotions in a in a, in a healthy way because there's lots of unhealthy ways that people talk about their emotions or, or manage their emotions and, and i talked about that at the beginning the emotions don't i always say to people they don't they're not they don't just end up in an abyss somewhere <laughs> they're still inside you um you know it may it may come out somewhere else you know, it may be that you come home and you kind of completely let rip with your family because, you know, I don't know that there's no dinner on the table or there's no there's shoes by the front door that you tripped over as you came in. Whatever it is that happens, there's some they go somewhere, um, whether they come out in the car when you're driving home and someone overtook you and that kind of made you really angry, whether that's um, it's just different things, different places for it to go, whether it goes it's through alcohol or through drug use or medication. Um, it's they, But it's about helping our team to process them in a way that that is that is a bit healthier um, mm. just picking up or re-emphasizing the point i wonder if people listening people in the community are aware of just how impactful it is when someone in a prominent or leadership position does share vulnerability because actually if you think there's adverse psychological phenomena are highly prevalent in healthcare um and if somebody who uh, appears to be keeping it together and steering the ship is able to say out loud that they're experiencing some difficulties and this is how they deal with it or just naming it then it makes other people who are experiencing the same thing feel more validated and Completely. normal and, and it, it doesn't make the team fall apart which is what often people worry they see me breaking they see me showing weakness <laughs> and that will make the team weak <laughs> You know, so I've got to be strong for my team. Um, and, and that's not necessarily the case. It's saying I can still be strong, but I can also show my emotions. Um, and that's OK, too. And I can still steer the ship, um, even with my emotions, um, because they exist. Seems like a fine line there. So one of the privileges of leadership is to be allowed to show your emotions. Unfortunately, some of the some of the emotions that we feel are negative ones, and we know that some people in leadership roles see that as a right to 
to display anger and frustration in ways that we would not tolerate from people who were who are lower on the hierarchy. Uh, I think for me that there's a bit of a sense of understanding that the the emotions that we're talking about here are the emotions that come with vulnerability yeah. of being not quite sure about stuff and and sharing that discomfort rather than um rather than the the emotions of the flash of anger and thinking it's okay to take that out on the person Absolutely. And, and, and that links into your work doesn't it Chris with civility saves lives that we actually want to promote a civil department that's kind to each other but also a department that can that can talk about their their sense of loss or their, their anger even we can talk about the anger but it's about how you show the anger so it's about saying that when I worked at, you know when I was with this family I felt really angry at the parents because it's because sometimes there are situations where you do experience that you know particularly where there's been abusive events that have taken place prior to a child coming into hospital i makes me reflect on another case it's a horrible 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 case so one of the things that we don't get in emergency medicine that that is a real privilege for you guys is time that that time to work with people so an awful lot of people i see are having the worst day of their life and sometimes that involves resuscitation and it involves terrible stuff. And I had a case a few years ago where I wasn't leading the team. The pedi- one of the, my pediatric colleagues was leading the team. And what we tend to do is give somebody senior to come and talk to the, the family. So I did that. I, I spoke with the mum and I was with her through the whole process uh, until we stopped uh, and her, her child died. And it's just, it's a, it's a brutal experience for, for everybody. Um, and we processed it and we went away. Then, I guess, six months, a year later, um, it went to court. And it turned out that, that the mother had been, the mother had abused the child. And I had this terrible sense of trying to make sense of me being at the end of the bed with walking through this process with somebody else. And I'm feeling a whole set of emotions. I have no idea what she was feeling at that moment in time. Um, But then going back and reprocessing, you know, a year later, reprocessing the experience, which was harrowing at the time, and then seemed to have become more harrowing. And, you know, I'm very lucky. I work with I work with quite, quite beautiful people and we have very honest discussions about how this stuff feels in, in our consultant office. Um, but of course, it was a year gone by and I couldn't remember who else had been in the team. And I know that the sort of senior nursing staff had discussions amongst themselves around it. But it, the point is that I think sometimes sometimes there's an in the moment and then there's a sort of the this yeah. sort of hot debrief, and then you find out stuff afterwards which completely destabilizes your understanding of what was going on at that moment. Uh, and certainly, I've, I've had that a couple of times in my career. Different things, you know, adults generally, um, and just you know, just again the need to make sense and how lucky I feel that I had people around me that I could make sense with, but. Then I suppose thinking about for for anybody who's listening to this and anybody who who's you know in a position of authority or even in a position of just being able to support you don't need authority to do that. Remembering that reaching out to folk and having conversations around this stuff could be so important afterwards, 
Um, and it's really a reflection rather than anything else. But you, you triggered me thinking about it, Hannah. So no, I think that's really that. important. I think I'm really glad you you talked about that because I think people don't realise. I know that, that I think there was something written about from Great Ormond Street when they've had high profile cases where which carry on for many years and the and the impact on on team members of that that they're constantly reliving their experiences every time that happens. And I think it's a different dimension now with social media um, that produces a different dimension. So you might be caring for a, a, a child in hospital and then you see all the things that, you know, on social media, parents are tweeting or putting things on their Instagram or whatever about the care that you're offering. And it's really hard to, you know, to disconnect from that because you'll find you'll go home and, and some of your friends will be talking about this particular family because they're well-known YouTubers or they're well-known and, and actually that's really hard because you know what, what you're offering um, but the media is saying something completely different and so it's it's really difficult and you can't talk about what you're offering because of confidentiality of, of, and so it's a you're really torn and the, it's really in, like you said peer support having your colleagues having those beautiful people you describe around you being able to talk to them about that experience is so important and I think we've really recognized that social distancing, not being able to have social events, all the things that we do to process, you know, some of that, being able to sit with a drink with a colleague and talk about it after work is a big thing for a lot of our teams. And we've not been able to do that. Um, and, and so all those things then were, you know, sort of they're held inside us. Um, so yeah, there, there is a lot to, to say there. Yeah, I mean, the, these events and cases are incredibly impactful on us. I think it would be kind of remiss of me not to point out that the opposite is true that when you experience a very good case or something going unexpectedly well or, or just you know a, a, some excellence uh, which is just highly prevalent then you yeah. also feel good I mean I, I can remember a sitting in the open cafeteria area in our hospital before the pandemic talking to a colleague and uh, a child and parent walking through and they the mother came up to me purposefully and I was worried she was going to tell me off for something I've done in the past um, and she just shook my hand and said uh, thank you you saved my son's life and then th there was the son standing in, in front of me who also shook my hand which was a delightful kid and and then it all came flooding back and I remember just how sick this child was and in fact I didn't know that he had survived because of the nature of our work I, I had moved on and um and I can tell you that stayed with me uh, for some time. Um, specifically throughout the rest of the day, I was annoyingly positive. Um, but, you know, for several weeks, and even now, that was several years ago, I, I still remember that. And it's sort of, um, it, it's useful to try and, maybe this isn't the antidote to this um, adverse events that we experience, but it certainly helps offset it. Yeah, I think it, what you alluded to is really important, being able to connect with those positives, either through each other with the with our systems that you've got sort of set up with our, our great X reporting, or whether that's through families um, connect, you know, bringing back their child or, their, you know, talking about their own experiences, the patients talking about their own experiences, being positive. And those equally are on social media as well now. So we can see sometimes insights into families lives that all patients lives that we never expected to see you'll see you know if they're particularly if they're prominent and active on social media so I think like you said Adrian we can't we can't lose the excellence in our conversation um, uh, I mean I think coming back to the point 
I made that I think you need a systems-based approach to try and tackle any issue that is highly prevalent, in this case, you know, adverse psychological experiences, then yeah, systems-based approach to shining the spotlight a bit more on what's working well might might be in order. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with learning from excellence. Um, because it is so impactful and yet we just have the tendency to accept it often with a bit of gratitude but then just move on without scrutinizing it or really getting deep into why this uh, was so good and there can be excellence in the most awful awful things the death of a child there there can be so much excellence in that and you know if we don't stop and pause and try and reflect on what we did that made that the best it could be, then we miss the chance to recreate that opportunity, to recreate those circumstances again. And it will never be exactly the same for other people. But one of the things we talk about, and I've talked a lot more about my job than we usually do today, but um, one of the things that, that my registrars will often say is they see doing good death as a really core part of being an emergency medicine doctor given given the circumstances that death tends to happen in my job which is that it's completely unexpected a lot of the time and we have to get families and we have to support people through that and we know that you know there's varying levels that we we do this on we and there are days when we do that as well as can be expected, it's utterly harrowing. It is it's massive, massively emotionally impactful. You know, you're, you're wrecked after it for a little while when you do it really well. But it is really worth stopping and thinking about what did we do that made that so good? And it's a combination of things. You know, there's environmental stuff, um, like having a room to go and break bad news in. What we do with families and whether we have them around and it's just a lot in there um and we don't unpack it very often we just sort of have a sense that we've done a good job and i, and I think we could do a lot more unpacking around it i was just thinking well. about what you were saying about good death and that's something that actually for our debriefs coming back to the debriefs that that's something that people talk about to me a lot within the debriefs is you know getting a sense of we gave a good death is and what it's interesting that that that's something that I um, hadn't realized was so important to staff teams until working in this job but actually that process of what we offered did we did the best we could we were able to give parents an opportunity to say goodbye or families an opportunity to say goodbye which is part of the components of a good death I think there's a paper in here Adrian uh, for what makes um you know kind of a good death for um for staff teams but I think there's, there is a sense of we closure, both physically within, you know, giving everybody a sense of closure. So giving families an opportunity to say goodbye, giving staff teams an opportunity to say goodbye. And what is it, the components that make that we feel afterwards psychologically OK with that death? Um, and what are the and maybe what are the things that in the opposite? When is it not a good death and what, what does that mean? So I think there is something really important about that debriefing process, being able to come to a kind of psychological yeah. kind of finish for that. We heard uh, from Margaret Moore, who's um, from the Institute of Coaching in the US, um, the the elements of psychological capital, one of which was efficacy or well, self-efficacy. Yeah. So if you, yeah. even in a bad situation, if you know you did a good job through the feedback that you received, then actually that will build into your your self-efficacy and, and, and sense that you, you're able to do your job and you're competent. Yeah. 
So, Hannah, we ask everybody this next question. This is getting to the core of you, what it really means to be Hannah. And that is when you walk in the room at work, when you walk through the door, what music do you want people to be hearing in their heads as you enter? So um, I thought about this and it would be every little thing she does is magic by the police sting. <laughs> so. Magnificently sparkly. I like that. Yeah, very appropriate because it's true in your case, Anna. Oh, <laughs> thank you, Adrian. I expect to hear it when I'm in at work later today. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me today. It's been a really enjoyable morning. Well, thank you very much. We we're really grateful that you could give us some time. Yeah, Hannah, it's been, it's been brilliant. I, I've thought about so much. I have pages upon pages of notes. I'm just drowning in paper here. Um, and that's always the sign of something that I've massively enjoyed. So thank you. So that was Henna Saeed Sabir of the Paediatric Intensive Care Unit at Birmingham Children's Hospital. We went from debrief through resilience and into resetting ourselves when our worldview is shattered. But it was always done with Henna's overarching approach, which seems to be of kindness and attentive curiosity. And whilst I think that many of us would benefit from a Henna in our workplace, maybe there's a chance we can bring a little bit of her approach to our own workplaces, to the benefit of those that we work with. Thank you for listening. We hope you have a great week. Till next time. Cheers.